Hello and welcome to Material Matters with me, Grant Gibson. We've been going for two years now, but for listeners who might be new to all this, the idea behind the show is that I speak to a designer, maker, artist or architect about material or technique with which they're intrinsically linked and discover how it changed their lives and careers. In the days before the virus, we'd visit our guests in their studios or workshops, but for now we're making do with the internet instead. Today's guest was one of the first names I jotted down on the list of people I wanted to interview when I started the show. I'm not entirely certain why it's taken me all this time to arrange a chat. Thomas Twaits graduated from the Royal College of Art in 2009 with a piece that has gone on to become genuinely iconic. In the Toaster Project, the designer set out to make this industrially manufactured product by hand. And when I say by hand, I don't mean reassembling pre-made components. Oh no. He mined his own iron ore to make steel, extracted copper from water and attempted to persuade BP to allow him onto an oil rig to bring back a jug of crude. Thwaites' adventure was published as our highly readable book in 2011. And not satisfied with that, a few years later this most unpredictable of designers came up with another book. Goatman, How I Took a Holiday from Being Human, charted his quest to live his life as a goat and crossed the Alps on all fours, eating grass along the route. It was described by designer Anthony Dunn as a wonderfully eccentric, at times absurd, but always thoughtful reflection on one man's journey into the wilder regions of design. Thomas, are you there? Yes. Hi, Grant. Hi. Thank Hello. you for that, that kind introduction. <laughs> yes. Reasonably accurate. Yeah. Yes. Good, good. Thank you. Yeah. I'm right in thinking you've just become a father. How's it all going? It's going well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, father for the second time. I mean, it's it's lovely, interesting, lots of fun. Tiring. Tiring, yeah. And <laughs> you start kind of wondering about doing those kind of all-night sessions in the workshop or whatever, you know, to get that deadline and how feasible that is, at least at the moment anyway, for the next, the next few years. And I have yet to tell her that I tried to become a goat. <laughs> <laughs> my, my daughter, who's three, and yeah, I don't know. Yeah, she's curious about my job. Yeah, we'll see how she takes you that. You haven't told her about becoming a goat? No, no, no. Uh, <laughs> her friends will love that at primary school. You ought to go in for what the daddy does day. Or yeah, something yeah, like. yeah, yeah. Maybe just a, a surprise on that day or something. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. I think I'm sort of waiting for her to just kind of pick up the book and then open it and then you know oh that's you dad and then I can um (laughs) then I can explain maybe I mean how do you work Thomas you talked about a workshop you you have a studio workshop somewhere where you come up with stuff uh yeah it's sort of project to project really I think a lot of my work is emailing and kind of getting a project together and so I don't need to be in a kind of a like making dusty workshop all the time because it takes a kind of lot of setup and and so on. So it's only, you know, I've got some friends who have a wonderful equipped space that I go to when I need to. Mm. But yeah, apart from that, it's, I don't know, I sort of see it, the life of a kind of designer in my sort of particular area is emails, kind of trying to sort of research and get in touch with people to go and kind of visit them and interview them and, you know, a lot of sort of desk work Mm. punctuated by desperate bouts of actually trying to put stuff together and get it working kind of thing. (laughs) And how have you coped with the pandemic? I mean, obviously you've had a child in the middle of it, but has it affected your practice? Um, 
in terms of like money and stuff, yeah, I lost a lot of um, a lot a lot of potential avenues um, of things that I was exploring. So that was a bit saddening, really, because you know some really great shows and then mm. <sighs> nothing. Can you can you tell us what what you might have been doing had all this not happened? Well, so Broken Nature, Goatman was in. Broken Nature, which was ah. put together by Paolo Antonelli. Um, Who's been on the show. Yeah, right. And um, that show has been taken to MoMA in New York. But because of the pandemic, there were big restrictions on which actual objects they were able to show. And Goatman is being shown there just in digital form, which is really sad because it was going to be in a physical form and that may still happen we'll see so yeah so there was that and various other things as well when you talk about a physical form you mean the kind of the legs and the arms or how does it take a physical form not a live goat i presume well i mean you know i did do a live performance at the vna once in my kind of apparatus my exoskeleton and uh, that was a bit of a sweaty sweaty talk from me but um, <laughs> anyway um yeah so the physical form of the work is the apparatus yeah. and the kind of bits of various kind of other things that were used in the sort of creation of the experience I suppose the prototypes and various sort of goat bits goat bones and so on yeah so a kind of assemblage of objects an assemblage of goats yeah exactly and they represent the different ways that i went about trying to do this impossible transformation yeah yeah well we will get into that because i mean as i said in my intro when i first started this podcast in 2019 your name was one of the first i jotted down as a potential guest because of the toaster project and it was the project you graduated with from design interactions at the royal college of art in 2009 do you get fed up of talking about it i hope not in the context of this show but is it a wait? There was a period in time where it was very much that kind of, oh God, I can't be bothered to <laughs> to like talk about it anymore because I was doing a bit more of the like the popular press kind of things and the questions you get are always the same and there's only so many times that you can tell like the funny anecdote or whatever. But that kind of fades and you're left with the project and, you know, kind of have a bit of a break from it and stuff and so once again I'm very happy to kind of talk about it and it's more interesting to talk about it in this kind of context than to a a sort of more general journalist or it's fun to talk about it to students. Well I hope so we'll see at the end of the show. (laughs) (laughs) It took nine months involved traveling 1900 miles around the UK it cost you 1187 pounds 54 pence and all to make a toaster that certainly back then you could have bought at Argos for £3.94, I guess. The obvious first question is why you decided to do it in the first place, Thomas? Yes. I'm trying to remember, to be honest. Um, <laughs> you know, it's kind of one of those like one of those ideas that just kind of comes along and like, okay, that sounds like an interesting idea. And that kind of creative, like, oh, yeah, that's that's exciting sort of thing that you get occasionally. I think there was also this fairly uh, arrogant, masculine aspect to it, like, uh, you know, Robinson Crusoe kind of, yeah, I want to be able to be somebody who can make stuff from 
rock. This was a project, you know, it was my graduation project. I like to think I've matured slightly since then. And in fact, through doing that project, I certainly did gain some maturity in terms of my sense of like myself and my own limitations. So there was that aspect to it. And also like a kind of underlying desire to explore my own culpability in the sustainability crisis, basically. So there's guilt involved. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Like, you know, because I knew the project was always going to be at core, like a sort of project about, I guess, sustainable design and consumerism. And so I like things and I like my lovely, comfortable life, yet my lovely comfortable life and all my things are unsustainable as at present and so it was how can I sort of talk about this in a way that is interesting and I guess lets me sort of explore this like impossible dilemma in a way I guess through this toaster. Why a toaster in particular of all the household objects you could choose? Uh, I think because it's funny. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Like What the pop? Yeah, I don't know. It's sort of got this humour to, it's a kind of slightly humorous object somehow. It's just, it feels a little bit eccentric as an object. It's kind of less fundamental than a kettle, maybe, you know, boiling water. You know, this is like for toasting bread kind of thing. I don't know. And the pop. And for some reason, you know, there's like sort of half-remembered science fiction toasters where they kind of refuse to toast or I don't know. It's just a funny object, basically. So I Mm. think that's why Mm. a toaster. There's a lovely quote in the book where you say, I also wanted to explore the grand scale processes hidden behind the smooth plastic casings of mundane everyday objects and to connect these things with the ground they're made from. So it's a sense of provenance was important as well. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, I guess that could be applied to any sort of object and a toaster is just one of the many examples of a smooth kind of plastic case or smooth case hiding a load of mess both kind of materially and sort of metaphysically as well. What were you expecting when you took the casing away from this this toast that you bought from Argos to deconstruct to find out how they're made? And you discovered, what, 404 individual bits made from 38 different materials. Did you have a sense before you opened the case of what you'd be finding? I had a sense. What I wasn't expecting was... uh, silicon chip essentially a mini computer and more complex electronics than you would expect in essentially like an electromechanical device and a lot of hand soldered joints and various sort of this mess essentially because you do think of it as this extremely simple object and it is extremely simple compared to the crazy techno system that we're communicating with now but it's still complicated, even this supposedly simple object. It's still complicated and it's messy. By messy, I don't mean like, oh, it's kind of badly put together. I just mean it extends into politics and it extends into deep geology and it extends into the future and it extends into ourselves, how we relate to it, this web of things which just is a big mess. Well, let's let's try and unpick some of the mess. So once you deconstructed it, you decided to simplify it into the bare minimum of materials that you feel you could get away Mm. with, which was steel, mica, plastic, copper and nickel. 
Mm. And, you know, as you mentioned, we mentioned, you went to extraordinary lengths to go and get them. When the project started, you set some rules. Can we maybe outline for the listener what those rules approximately were? Yes, the rules. So, okay, so it had to be a toaster, you know, I wasn't allowed to just make a fire to toast a piece of bread that would have got the job done but it (laughs) wouldn't be making a toaster and rule two was I had to make everything from scratch basically starting from the raw material from which it's derived and rule three was this sort of idea that I was going to do it on a kind of domestic scale and I guess that was to stop me from being allowed to essentially like purchase components and assemble them into a toaster. And partly there was this sort of aspect to it being like a pre-industrial process, you know, making it before there were industrial machines, essentially. And so I guess I was trying to get at this kind of by hand sort of aspect because I suppose I could take some raw materials to a factory and kind of do it all in a factory or something like that. So yeah, so I, it was sort of like to make this a project where I was making this industrially produced object. I wanted to make it on this kind of small scale and in a sort of pre-industrial way. It's tricky because <laughs> um, those rules are kind of not watertight, if you see what I mean. <laughs> but for me, one of the joys of doing a project rather than a thought experiment or whatever is with a project where you're actually kind of up against reality. Reality provides many more constraints on what you can do but than a kind of thought experiment. Um, but it also, I don't know, necessitates some sort of flexibility and you get to be a little bit less academically or philosophically rigorous somehow because you're kind of there's a practicality to it yeah yeah and it's you know and it's a design project it's not a rigorous engineering project it's a kind of project which is meant to be used to explore hazy aspects of the world and how we live you know which kind of encompass things like guilt and all of that personal mess and so <laughs> so yeah I had these rules and they're sort of they're there in the background but I did end up essentially breaking all of my rules there is a bit of flex in them yeah 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 one of the things that's striking throughout the project and it is same case in Goatman as well is that people are incredibly generous to you Thomas they, you know they give of your time and perhaps we should start with Ray Wright in the Clearwell Caves you went to the Forest of Dean to extract iron ore and he let you in and helped well fundamentally mined it himself right Yes. So Ray was this retired miner from this mine, which is kind of now a tourist attraction called Clearwell Caves. And I think the fact that I was approaching him with this, firstly, this absurd goal to make a toaster, but also this kind of slightly faux naivety and this kind of boundless enthusiasm sort of thing. (laughs) And you get that kind of relationship where somebody is telling you, I don't think you understand how difficult this is going to be, but you're still kind of trying to do it anyway. And and I don't know, it's, you know, I guess he wanted to help, (laughs) you know, it's like help this sort of naive sort of fool in a way, Um, you, you know, achieve this 
quite nice idea of a goal, this sort of, it's like nice to help somebody on their quest, maybe. What is striking, as I say, in, in both books, is that people are incredibly willing to help. If you turn up to a goat farmer in the Swiss Alps, saying you want to join his herd, he appears to let you, which I find <laughs> fairly extraordinary. Because let's face it, farmers generally aren't known as the most liberal, forward-thinking people. Yeah, that was really stressful, actually, um, thinking back to that. <laughs> because, uh, yeah, because if he'd said no, then that would have been, that's it. Like, that's project over kind of thing. Um, yeah, so I guess, you know, that was lucky. I also think, I mentioned faux naivety. People... If you kind of have put a bit of the the work in to understand the limits of the project a, a little bit, you sort of have to reassure them that you're not insane. You know, you're not like completely just so eccentric that you can't understand them or the kind of bigger picture. So you sort of have to you know, drop hints or, you know, or, you know, kind of reassure them that, yes, I know it seems like this kind of, idiotic project to sort of become a goat but I think I don't necessarily know why I think this is interesting but I think it is interesting aside from the sort of apparent lunacy and so you can have some really interesting conversations which is essentially what the project is about in a way for me yeah it's kind of a lovely excuse to go and talk to people that I wouldn't normally speak to and so you kind of have these nice conversations by reassuring them that, that you've kind of thought it through a little bit and it's not just a whim if you see what I mean it's like mm. there's something mm. more to it than like the surface there are parallels it seems to be having read the two books with journalism actually I mean it was, strikes me if there's and something very gonzo about it had Hunter S Thompson been a designer he would have done something like this I think yeah yeah I have such uh, you know such admiration for for journalists really um because I think it's such an important part of our world. And so I guess it is a bit like journalism through the vehicle of making and design, probably with a bit less, I don't know, sort of di a different kind of rigour, I think, than journalism. I guess there is a sort of Hunter S. Thompson aspect to it the trouble is is there is also like you know I mentioned earlier oh what have I been doing you know do I work in a studio do I work at a desk well there is a, an awful lot of like emailing and kind of setting up these meetings that goes on and so it's sort of you know you think of Hunter S Thompson and gonzo journalism and it's just like really kind of going with the flow and like rolling from one kind of brilliant sort of moment and thing to another and I, I mean, and I'm sure it isn't or wasn't like that. You know, there's lots of boredom in between and stuff. But when you are actually trying to make something as well, there's like, there is also this aspect of it never works. It's always much more difficult than you think it's going to be. It's like, ah, you know, finding the suppliers that can find you the right kind of silicone, which is food safe, such that you can then mould it into an artificial rumen that you could have some kind of confidence that you weren't going to poison yourself with some kind of additive or whatever. <laughs> and so it's all of those like kind of journalism, but, you know, with all of that sort of it's journalism, but harder, is what you're saying, Thomas. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Journalism, but, <laughs> journalism, but harder. But then, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, 
we're zipping forward a little. I mean, I'm mm. quite keen to just wind back to the Toaster Project. I was quite intrigued because one of, the thing, one of the things I love about your books particularly is that you take a subject, but then you branch off. And for the reader, you learn stuff. And one of the things I was quite intrigued by was that Herbert Hoover, who later became the president of the United States of America, translated a book on iron smelting originally written in Latin in the 16th century. And this became your manual to smelt iron ore, which is extraordinary. Yeah, yeah. So Dore Metallica, this kind of like the first textbook written in the sort of Western sphere about kind of metallurgy and such a brilliant kind of book. But you had to go back that far to learn these techniques, which I think is intriguing. Yeah. There's nothing else written later that could tell you how to do it because everything was on an industrial scale. Yes, I guess it relates also to the kind of experimental archaeologists who are writing about this text and then also attempting to recreate the sort of furnaces that they found evidence of and that were kind of drawn in this book. Yeah, so essentially, you can kind of look in the book, the woodcuts diagrams are of one or two people with spades and a kind of set of bellows and charcoal smelting metal and that is what you can do when you're one or two people uh, with a spade and charcoal so that's pretty much what you're limited to in the book I wrote that oh yeah the last time people were doing this kind of thing this sort of artisanal iron smelting was hundreds of years ago but I've since learned about artisanal smelting operations you know illegal artisanal smelting operations which kind of happen in the Amazon or Niger Delta um, in Nigeria there's kind of artisanal sort of oil refining operations and, you know, kind of that artisanal mining, which is essentially sort of poorly regulated, dangerous sort of mining. And I've since come to reappraise this idea that you go back in time to, you know, the smaller the scale on which you need to work. And William Gibson's aphorism that the future is just kind of unevenly distributed applies to smelting and oil refining as well, because it turns out people are still doing these industrial society, like these old fashioned sort of methods and and small scale methods. Yeah. But you decided to do this in your mum's or your back garden with a chimney pot, your mother's leaf blower. And then, then you ended up having to use a microwave. You destroyed your mother's microwave she must be a very patient woman, Thomas. Um, yes, yeah, she she is. Yeah, I, you know, I was a student at the time, living at home. Yes, yeah, so, you know, I made use of lots of sort of equipment, um, sort of which I sort of borrowed <laughs> or just took. The kind of funny thing to me, anyway, is like these sort of various pots and pans and so on, and microwaves and leaf blowers. Since the, the Victorian Albert Museum bought the project, and so now these like pots and pans and old microwaves and so on are in the V&A collection, in the archive. They've all been kind of archived and the sort of curators <laughs> handle them with white gloves and stuff like that. And um, yeah, and it's a very sort of fun and curious sort of transformation from tools and junk, essentially, to 
museum exhibit saved for the nation kind of thing and the curators uh you know I was there fairly recently and we had a lot of fun with this sort of slight disconnect <laughs> talking about whether we should conserve the leaf that was stuck to one of the burners I had which I was using outside and so on so mum's old microwave is it, now is it preserved you know, it is preserved yes yeah because Phew. yeah yeah we we decided that it was symbolic of the fact that this happened outside and in this you know kind of in this fairly gonzo slapdash kind of way can we talk a bit about your background your parents are mentioned in passing in the books i mean what did they do are they from a design background they are both from new zealand um which stereotypically that generation from New Zealand, you know, a lot of DIY. I've just read a memoir written by my dad's sister, which described their childhood. And it was all, you know, it's kind of like making your own things, making your own clothes, kind of stealing coal um, to sort of <laughs> like light the range in the morning. Basically, sort of this very scrappy childhood, which my dad had and you know since then he's just came to this country and huge sort of DIY person so I was growing up in houses which the sort of entire front facade had been removed because it needed to be rebuilt and this was all happening in this kind of DIY sort of way so yeah so maybe that infused this and became this like yeah I'm, I can make a toaster I can become a goat this yeah, sort yeah. of like yeah why not you know sure were you making as a child um I suppose so I can't really remember to be honest uh I I sort of did find it quite difficult to work out which side of the creative versus scientific technical side of things I was going to be on and so I was sort of constantly in terms of education at least flipping back and forth between the sciences and the arts and you know trying to find some way of like I don't know combining the two and then went to the Royal College of Art to do this course run by Anthony Dunn and Fiona Raby which was all about sort of approaching the sciences from a design perspective. I mean, this notion of being a a critical designer or a storyteller rather than somebody who creates products for industry, when did that develop? I suppose it developed partly during that um, design interactions, that kind of formative two years spent there. And I think, you know, I really love stories. And so, you know, I guess that's just another kind of natural aspect of my character as well. My mum did kind of children's books as when she was working. So yeah, I don't know. Yeah. So it's like a combination of stories, sort of the fascination with like science and the scientific method and so on. And then also some kind of desire to like actually make things and somehow they're all collapsed into this storytelling, critical designs niche that I'm in. Mm. I mean, it's quite a hard route, I imagine, Thomas. Did you think about when you left the Royal College, did you think about how am I going to work? Not really, because I guess the Taster Project really was quite a kind of explosion of like, there was this explosion of interest. And so when you do a kind of project that is on the sort of various popular news 
things. And then I was getting lots and lots of calls from TV companies saying, you know, come on, we'll do a like a TV show. So I ended up doing a TV show, which thankfully has only ever played in like South Korea and well, and, and Australia, I think as well. But, you know, it was, doing the TV show was like so hideously difficult and embarrassing. You were presenting it. Yeah, I was presenting it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I found it uncomfortable because it was just too much of an act. It's like guided reality kind of thing was the style of this TV show. And it was just sort of having to be really enthusiastic about something, but several times in a row. And you're Mm. just like, ah, this feels so fake. (laughs) But yeah, it when I do kind of talk to students and stuff, you know, of course, like the big question is like, okay, how do you make any money doing this kind of critically engaged or, you know, this kind of critical storytelling sort of work and it is difficult and it's not highly remunerated. It's like, maybe it's like having a podcast or whatever. It's like, it sounds very much like yeah, having a podcast. Yeah, exactly, yeah. You know, <laughs> and you're kind of, calling on favours and sort of you're relying on other people's generosity, like kind of going to see them and, you know, interview them and you're like applying for grants and all of that kind of thing. It's fun and it's interesting, but yeah, you don't make a lot of money. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, that, that sounds very familiar. Um, we're digressing a little because we're still making a toaster here, I think. Uh, so next up, you need to source mica. I mean, what is mica and, and how is it used in a toaster? Mica is, it's a mineral and it is a good heat insulator and a good electrical insulator. And that makes it very useful as a substrate around which you can wrap heating elements, which when a heating element is just a bare resistance wire, certainly in toasters and kind of cheap hair dryers and so on. So it's just this mineral which they kind of wrap the sort of heating wire around in things that get hot. When it's processed anyway, it's this kind of grey, slightly shiny board. But when it's flakes, then it's kind of lovely and glittery because it's transparent. And so you kind of get mica in lipstick or they use it to colour paint and so on. And it's this beautiful mineral, which is kind of transparent. It's like a transparent rock. Easy to find? Um I had to go to the Highlands of Scotland to find mica for my toaster, <laughs> you know, which was a lovely kind of adventure, um, getting the night train up and then kind of a boat over to this sort of abandoned mica mine, uh, kind of following this sort of sketch of a map which somebody had done us. That was like a real moment of like digging up the raw material from the ground, getting this mica out of this kind of abandoned quarry. And it's a fairly essential small part of a lot of modern conveniences. Mm. And then plastic, which was needed for the casing. So you needed crude oil and you go to BP, but BP aren't playing ball. It seems to me the plastic is arguably the trickiest element of your journey through this product. Yeah. So talking about pre-industrial technology, you don't see much in the way of plastic. And (laughs) I was determined to kind of have some plastic case because I think that the plastic case is this way of hiding everything from the user or the consumer or whatever. You know, I guess we can imagine all of our technological objects, you know, if none of them had cases, then we'd be 
presented with the complexity of these mm. things in a much more visceral way. Design is all about hiding the complexity from the user. You know, you talk about user interface design and sort of styling of phones and so on. It's all about kind of making it simple or whatever. And I guess the Toaster Project was about questioning that role for design and trying to use it to reveal complexity. And so, yeah, so the, this kind of plastic case... I tried to get oil from BP. You know, they were one of the people that I was trying to convince, you know, pulling my like phone naivety, <laughs> like really enthusiastic way with the kind of PR people there. They weren't playing ball. And so I ended up kind of breaking all my rules. And after trying kind of various bioplastics, potato starch plastics and so on, and kind of discarding that as a route because the plastic I was able to make just wasn't good enough. But also because there was something nice about going full circle and visiting a consumer electronics recycling factory and sort of talking to the people having to deal with the kind of waste toasters and stuff. And so I went up to this plastics recycling firm in Salford and they gave me some old consumer plastic waste and I ended up trying to sort of squish that into a toaster case using a wooden tree trunk compression mold that I'd made and ended up with this grotesque <laughs> version of a uh, Argos toaster. What's kind of interesting is obviously this was 11 years ago now slightly more and when you're writing, and obviously when I've seen you talk about it back then, there was this kind of realisation that we were arriving at the age of plastic or the Anthropocene was, was a relatively new idea. Mm, and obviously mm. that's now become much more developed. So one of the ways I let myself break this kind of rule that I needed to sort of be making all my components from raw materials was trying to argue that there's so much plastic in the environment now that it could be conceived of as a kind of raw material that you can mine and indeed kind of like various companies like Adidas and I think you know Parlay for the Oceans and there's been various design objects that have been produced by plastic harvested from the sea and so yeah so that was my way of basically being able to use recycled plastic in that perhaps mining it is a kind of raw material in the environment now yeah that's the flex on the rules <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> yeah yeah but yeah the the anthropocene it's an interesting concept i mean i think some geologists love it some geologists hate it i have read a lovely critique of the anthropocene which is along the lines of oh it's like another anthropocentric view of the world of the environment we're a blip, if you see what I mean. Like the Anthropocene is not a kind of epoch, it's a blip, it's a spike in the geological record. It'd be too grand to call it an epoch, um, at least at the moment. So I'm more towards it's a blip, really. Yeah, no, fair enough. Continuing the journey, you then will source copper for the pins of the plug. You travel to an old mine in Anglesey and you extract material from water rather than rock in that case. Yeah, so it's another metallurgical industrial process. Often, instead of kind of extraction through heat, you extract through kind of dissolving and electroplating. And so the water in this mine in Anglesey had become so polluted with copper that I could extract copper from it using electroplating. 
And then I cast the copper using cuttlefish shells, where you use cuttlefish shells as your mould because they're sort of heat resistant, you know, calcium carbonate or whatever. And then you tip the molten copper into these cuttlefish shells and then it's this ancient sort of jewellery casting technique sort of beautiful thing somehow because on the spurs you get the imprint of the cuttlefish bone and it's just a kind of lovely thing somehow and do you have a sense was there a point during the project where you kind of thought to yourself i'm not quite going to be able to produce the toaster that i thought i might have been able to to begin with definitely although i did start the project thinking yeah it's got to be a pop-up toaster which means a spring and so on like producing spring steel is way (laughs) way way beyond anything that I was capable of and I realized that fairly early on but I suppose you get swept up in just the sort of doing it bit by bit and you know it's working half working and it's only until you're forced to stop by some kind of deadline that you know then you kind of get to take stock and think like wow this final thing is very far off what I was initially believing I'd be capable of no springs no steel even just wrought iron sort of very impure copper and yeah all sorts of problems what's interesting is as it goes on news of the project is obviously out there leaking onto the internet and you get an email from alaska letting you know that the project is being kind of manipulated i guess it's safe to say by a company that's proposing an open pit gold mine near a salmon fishery in bristol bay i mean that seemed to give you pause for thought Yes, the Toaster Project does have this like dual sort of can be taken in in many different ways, but it's often found itself held up as an uncritical example of how reliant or how much industrial capitalism has made possible. And so it was on this kind of blog of this kind of mine company which was sort of holding it up as like oh mining does so much good for the modern Mm. world (laughs) and then I've also had emails from like the Koch brothers Koch brothers the sort of very right-wing libertarian company really who operate in the states you know for the most part and they wanted to include it in their educational materials at a kind of business school that they have as a example of like market economics fundamentalism a designer attempted to do it all himself and this is what he got kind of thing and there is that aspect to it because like I said we have all these wonderful comfortable things and they all kind of come from all over the world and it's amazing but then there's this also other aspect of the project which is the pricing of it which is are these things kind of too cheap essentially we're not paying the full cost of them they're you know we're not paying the cost for the environmental cleanup is what is really what you're, it's a, you're yeah, saying yeah exactly there, right? because you know in economics there are all these externalities which aren't included in the final price that we pay and so taking the mobile phone as the example oh they get replaced every three years or whatever well part of the reason they can be replaced every three years is they're sold at a price which makes it just about possible to do that and of course apple and google and samsung they're all trying to get that price just right just enough to like let us be able to kind of pay them more money every three years but you know not so cheap that they're not making as much as they could like the sort of 
very beginning of an economics textbook is all about setting a price and supply and demand and all of that kind of thing. And it's not until the very end that you start getting to externalities in the kind of market, whether they be environmental, environmental pollution or kind of social people working slave wages, you know, under poor conditions or whatever. And so what happens if we have to pay all of those people for properly for the clothes that they make us or the mining that they do for us or whatever? And so there's that criticism in the project as well. Does it bother you then when the project gets used in ways that you'd rather it didn't? It doesn't really, I think, because I hope anyway that some of that criticism can't be removed from it. And also, I think it's very important to talk to people outside of your bubble and to people that think differently to you and so on, and to sort of recognise other people's point of view and perspective. And I think that's one of the nice things about doing a design project is you can be a bit flexible and you can admit you're not necessarily making an argument with the intention of winning, you're imaginatively researching or you know, trying to find out for yourself as well. I think that's the attitude I take when I'm doing that kind of work. As we said, it's over 10 years since you did it. Do you think attitudes have changed noticeably since then? I mean, I guess in terms of the environment. I don't know. And that's part of a problem because I think they're changing because, you know, I'm drinking a lot more oat milk and all of that kind of stuff than I was 10 years ago. But I am aware enough not to rely on my own anecdote as a idea of what is happening more generally in the world. And so I'm not sure what kind of consumers on the continent of Africa are thinking. I'm not sure what consumers in China or India are thinking. There's vast amounts of people who all want to live comfortably and, you know, to sort of have a nice life and so on. So, yeah, so I hope attitudes are in general changing. Of course, Biden's just got in in the States and will maybe be taking climate change seriously. But I'm a bit worried that taking climate change seriously might not mean kind of radical change, might just mean sort of piecemeal sort of bit by bit change. And I don't think we've got time for that anymore. So, I don't know. Our attitudes change. You tell me. You speak to lots of people. (laughs) Uh, Yes, well, you know, I I think attitudes in certain sections, attitudes are changing. Yeah, I think it's interesting that it is becoming more of a mainstream topic than it was ten years ago. Um, Theresa May gave the first prime ministerial speech about the environment for donkey's years when she was prime minister, albeit you know not the most successful prime minister we've ever had. So you know, I think attitudes are changing, but probably too slowly anyway we shall see continuing thomas with you we catch up with you a few years later in 2016 at the beginning of goat man and you don't seem to be in such a good place then (laughs) you were keen to have a holiday from being a human why was that was it the TV career that yeah, got to yeah, you so yeah, much that yeah, pretty you much. needed to be yeah, an animal yeah. instead? Definitely yeah. <laughs> one of the reasons was the kind of TV thing hadn't worked out, the usual kind of money worries, sort of arguments with my family and all of that. Yeah, you know, just sort of feeling a bit down in the dumps. And then I have this, I guess, epiphany, which is, oh, wouldn't it be much simpler to not be a human and just to kind of have a holiday from worry and regret and just gallop away, just escape. And so that was the germ of this idea to... And initially the plan was to be an elephant. 
Yes, it was to be an elephant. I don't know why necessarily to be an elephant just seemed it looked a bit fun. You know, you'd have a trunk and you'd have to be able to squirt people and that'd be fun. But after getting some funding to become an elephant from the Wellcome Trust, I quickly realised that elephants also have some sense of certainly worry or regret or, you know, they... But their mortality, isn't it? They do mourn the dead. Exactly. They have a kind of a sense of their own mortality and they live in complex social groups, you know, complex families with friends and enemies and, you know, and all of that was exactly the kind of thing I was trying to escape from. And so I was left with this conundrum of having all of this kind of wonderful grant money to become an elephant and then not wanting to be an elephant anymore. Well, you took the obvious next step, which was to visit a shaman in Copenhagen to find out what to do, right? Yes, and it is sort of the obvious next step because (laughs) who are, you know, kind of experts in sort of human to animal transformation? Well, like shamans you know um and so i suppose i went to consult the shaman to find my spirit animal or whatever and yeah and she was great and immediately called me an idiot for thinking i could become an elephant and uh said of course i should you know you need to become a goat she was absolutely right. Um, so, yeah. So a goat it was. And it was a really all-encompassing effort you took to be a goat as well. I mean, you mentally tried to be a goat. You take mind-altering drugs in an attempt to reach a higher level of consciousness. <laughs> and and you, differ, yeah. you differ from Hunter S. Thompson in that he would have loved that. You didn't seem to get on with them so well. Y- yeah, yes, yes. Um, uh, <laughs> yeah, yes. The less said about that, the better, <laughs> in a way. That's a kind of anecdote for a late night in a bar or something like that. Yeah, so mind altering drugs didn't go well. But I think it wasn't just about thinking I was a goat, I suppose, but I wanted to like explore something else. And that was a little bit to do with technology and, you know, what are the limits of our technology, I suppose. And in a way, Again, it goes back to this like, oh, it should be simple to make a toaster. I was sort of thinking, oh, it should be simple to downgrade my human body and mind to that of a kind of lower form of life, a goat, a lowly goat. So, you know, it should be fairly doable to, you know, kind of go from a sort of complex human to a lowly, simple goat. And of course, during the project, I realise how stupid that view is talking to you know a neuroscientist and a sort of anatomist and uh rumen biologists and so on yeah i mean talk to me about transcranial magnetic stimulation that shuts off a part of your brain so you can't speak right yeah so our brains are i guess electrical you know they they have nerve cells which use kind of electrical connections across synapses and so if you put a big very powerful magnet next to your brain then it interferes with that electrical activity and so this technique transcranial magnetic simulation or tms is putting a big magnet on your skull to sort of interfere with the neurons in the brain below the magnet and i convinced this neuroscientist at ucl to Initially, I said, can you make me think I'm a goat and turn off my ability to remember and think and imagine the future and my ability to communicate? And he said, 
well, if I did that, then I'd basically kill you because <laughs> that's most of what your brain does. But, you know, I can maybe target this one small area which will stop you from being able to speak. And it was a very unpleasant experience, I must say, because it makes all your kind of nerves in the side of your face and the nerves that run down into your teeth makes them go haywire as well. And so you get these kind of shooting pains and this like clenched jaw. I've since gone back and and had it done again. And it did stop me from being able to speak. I'm not the most fluent speaker anyway, as you may have realised. Apologies to the listeners of this podcast. But uh, yeah, it sort of made me stutter and I don't really have a stutter and it made me unable to just kind of get the words out and uh, yeah it was sort of a slightly strange discomforting sort of disconcerting feeling. Mm. Why did you do it a second time? Um, Because it's quite difficult to target this spot and so you need to have an MRI scan done and so from that MRI, they can locate the exact spot that they need to target. And then they sort of put the magnet there. But the first time he was just trying to... Freeform. Freeform, exactly. <laughs> yeah, freehand induce a lesion in that particular part of the brain. Yeah. And you talk to various goat experts. You're involved in a dissection of a goat. I mean, primarily, I think, to see how it digests grass, which is something you try and copy. And, and how did you try to eat and digest grass? So goats and other ruminants, they have a rumen, which is a, you know, this kind of specialised extra stomach with a whole different type of juice in it. So it's not acidic, it's kind of a collection of whole different microbiome. So I tried to make myself an artificial rumen. Essentially, the plan was I'd have this kind of U-shaped bag strapped to my torso and I'd bite some grass, chew, chew, chew. You'd have to get on all fours to get to the grass in the first place because you've got... Yeah, so I've got kind of prosthetic limbs and then I'm biting off the grass and chew, chew, chewing it, spitting it into this U-shaped bag. And then the idea was that I would get some of the microbes like the bacteria and fungi from inside an actual goat's rumen, get a sample of that and then put those microbes into this bag strapped to my own torso and keep it at the right temperature with my body heat. And then they would kind of multiply and do their kind of thing that they do and ferment this kind of grass. And then the mixture that comes out would be the same as that that comes out of a goat's rumen and then I could suck out that mixture (laughs) and then it would go down my throat into my true stomach in the same way that it then is passed internally from a goat's rumen into their stomach and so it was kind of like this external rumen that I had Um, and I made it out of silicone and took it up to the ruminant biology lab at Aberystwyth University and the scientists there were all kind of nodding along and encouraging me yeah this could work you know this could be great but I just needed to get them to give me a sample of that fluid from inside a goat at the right time and they said they would but when it came to the crunch they just sent me a letter drafted by their legal department saying that any suggestion that they had encouraged me to do this at all was false and they could not be held responsible etc etc and they certainly wouldn't provide the sample of rumen fluid (laughs) and they kind of explained that they just couldn't get it past the legal team because why would that be who could imagine why why 
I mean, <laughs> there are so many points in this book where I'm going, please don't do this to yourself, Thomas. Yeah, please don't do I this mean, to yourself. Yeah, and it's that naivety again, which is useful. It's useful because it makes you kind of like, it sets you out on a road and then the obviously the road changes and you kind of go in a different direction. But it's nice to at least believe that you can do it at the beginning um, which is what I do and then to kind of gradually have to adapt but uh, yeah. And then there's building the apparatus itself which you describe I think rather lyrically as you look like a cross-dresser at the back end post-World War II NHS amputee at the front. (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) Yes because high heels they sort of put your foot into a shape of a ungulant, I suppose. I think that's the word. In that they raise, you know, you're on your kind of toes and that is essentially what quadrupeds are. They're sort of on their toes with their whole foot raised up and it's why people think a horse's knee goes backwards. It's because they're not looking at their knee, they're looking at their ankle, which is the first joint. Yeah, so my ankles are kind of off the floor, raised into the air, And then because I'd gone to have the front prosthetics for my front limbs were made um, at the University of Manchester, their kind of prosthetics training department. And they decided to use this very old style of prosthetic joint because it was more robust, essentially, because I'd be taking it into this kind of extreme alpine conditions. And so they made me these like sort of, yeah, artificial front legs which did look quite kind of victorian in a way as we said you end up in switzerland at a goat farmer persuading a goat farm to let you join his herd and you are accepted by the goats i mean this is quite extraordinary you know they're nuzzling you you're hanging out with goats you were a goat to all intents and purposes by the sound of it yes i mean that's one way of thinking about it because yeah they did you know the goat herd himself you know and he's the guy who knows his goats he lives with them all year and he said that he thought the goats had accepted me which was just such an amazing thing to hear and yeah I'm sort of living with them and sort of being in the middle of the herd and even almost kind of getting into a fight with you're grazing too far up the mountain yeah 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 so um, this is not done in goat world Yeah, so any new introduction to a herd which has to find their place in the pecking order, so in the same way that a new sort of addition to a group of friends or whatever has to find where they feel comfortable. And so the way that goats do that is if you want to challenge a goat's dominance, you kind of you don't move away when they move towards you or they or you're kind of raised on a higher part of the hill. And I was doing all of these, sending all these goat signals, like I want to challenge your dominance to the matriarchs in this very tight-knit herd. Yeah, they took me up on the challenge. (laughs) And so, you know, started kind of rearing up and sort of, I guess, like, you know, offering me up for a a fight kind of thing. And as soon as I realised what was happening, I'm like... Mr. Submissive, uh, you know, back away and kind of just skulk off because it was terrifying. Like they are 
much better goats than I could ever hope to be because I'm essentially not a goat not a goat (laughs) yeah yeah clanking around and I'm uncomfortable and my prosthetics are painful what were the outcomes what was the learning what did you glean and what are we supposed to glean from it it took me a while to work out what this project was about I don't know if I've managed to sort of work it out before the book was published really but since then I've kind of come to the realisation that it was a, a this attempt at kind of escaping regret and worry in a kind of personal sense. But I think it was also this attempt at escaping the future, if you see what I mean, or kind of maybe not escaping, but counteracting a sense of the future. Because I grew up watching Star Trek and not just Star Trek, but Star Trek The Next Generation. And I realised that that period of science fiction or whatever of future, it was sort of just pre-2000, you know, the millennium. It was like really kind of optimistic techno future visions were like all over the place. And since then, they've all gone a bit sour, if you see what I mean. Like you look at the science fiction coming out nowadays and it's much bleaker I think and we're a bit more questioning of like the power of the internet to bring people together it's all about the problems that Facebook and social media etc etc and so for me it was about coming to terms with the loss of this optimistic future in that yes we can keep striving for Star Trek keep striving for like this sort of enlightened, rational, human spirit sort of idea. Or that doesn't seem to be working, really. All of those kind of promises from the millennium around that time, they don't seem to be working. We're still facing this environmental crisis and so on. And so maybe we should stop striving and just accept that we're just goats, if you see what I mean. Or or we should just accept a future which is not reaching for the stars. It's a future which is summed up by being content on a hillside. None of these kind of big visions. For me, that's sort of what the project came to represent. And it's kind of why I think I found doing the project quite difficult because it felt like it's a like giving up somehow it's like a giving up on like success of somehow it's like there's something there which I have yet to properly unpack but yeah well it's interesting you use the word success because what's fascinating about the book is that the actual crossing of the Alps which is what you had to do to get the funding from the Wellcome Trust is kind of dismissed fundamentally I mean you barely write a word about it most people I would imagine would describe setting out to do something and then actually doing it as success but it doesn't seem to bother you and in fact in some ways you seem more happy with failure is that a reasonable statement um yes i mean i think failure is okay in terms of the goat project because fundamentally it is impossible to become a goat i still think I would like to do the project again, really. But with, you know, imagine if you had unlimited resources, get kind of Boston Dynamics involved and like really kind of make some kind of exoskeleton sort of, you know, there's still that in me. But I think failure, it's, you know, it's instructive failure, isn't it? And and that's fine. And also failure is 
can it be a bit of an antidote to success <laughs> um, or, or to like the kind of narrative of success that you get in other sort of business sort of settings well, it's become quite fashionable failure though it hasn't has, it? there's lots yeah, of podcasts yeah. and books out there where actually everybody's succeeded in the end they have failed but they generally succeed yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> they're generally very successful yeah they failed but they're doing a TED yeah. talk about it <laughs> like you know some kind of glamorous conference or whatever true failure isn't very fun at all but I guess the projects I do it's not so much failure as the rules you make up are your own and the straightforward goal is not necessarily the same as the kind of underlying goal and so you know the straightforward goal is to become a goat and okay and cross the Alps and in my heart of hearts I didn't feel like a I became a goat for any length of time I didn't sort of achieve that sense of lightness and freedom from worry that I set out to do and the prosthetics were painful and it was cold and unpleasant and I was constantly wanting like coffee and a shower <laughs> and so I was still a human but it was like you know toast yeah exactly toast just something you know nice to eat so there was that kind of failure aspect to it, but that was the failure on the kind of the stated goal. But the sort of underlying goal was to interrogate a little bit my sort of subconscious idea of the future and humanity's future. And also this sort of idea of like, oh, other forms of other animals are kind of in some sense like lower in terms of like complexity and like it should be easy to downgrade our bodies because there's all of these kind of post-human sort of ideas of like upgrade your body, you know, and all of that kind of stuff. And there's just a lot of column inches spilt on that kind of stuff. But like the actual interface between something biological and something mechanical is very often a source of pain and it's not something you would want if you ask an amputee you know it's a hassle and so so kind of slightly interrogating that like techno scientific utopian idea of things um and this sort of like you, you know slightly sort of putting ourselves above the natural world you know um yeah, and kind of coming to terms with a sort of new relationship to it, you know, within it or whatever, the kind of post-anthropocentric, de-anthropocentric view of ourselves in nature or as part of nature and so on. So, yeah, so, and as a kind of underlying goal, I sort of explored that for myself, you know, and that's what I set out to do. So that was kind of successful yeah, yeah. in yeah, that yeah. sense, but failure to become a goat, you know, <laughs> and in the same way with the toaster, failed to make a working pop-up toaster, but kind of succeeded in the underlying goal, which was to sort of explore the world through this yeah, toaster, yeah. if you see what I mean. So you've done these other projects, Voodoo Economics, which was about inequality. You made a film about sustainability for the Design, Count, uh, Design Museum in London. Do you see yourself as an activist? Ah, oh, that would be such a kind of compliment. Um, I don't see myself as an activist. I said earlier that I kind of admire journalists and I admire activists. The work I do, I don't see as particularly dangerous, but the work of an activist can be dangerous you know I'm slightly kind of introverted and so I would like to be an activist and I like to make kind of politically engaged work but it's a concern that 
certainly like gallery work um you know work that's seen in galleries you just kind of worry that it's a bit preaching to the choir I don't know what the like audience makeup of the various galleries that my work is seen in I don't know who goes to it and maybe it does sort of change some minds and change some views and so on and it should be a conversation but I just worry that the conversation is a bit amongst ourselves if you see what I mean um which is why I like it when projects like the toaster project and the goat project do kind of explode across and you start getting odd emails from people that I would think definitely wouldn't have seen the work if it had sort of remained within a kind of cultural sort of certain cultural niche that I'm in yeah yeah well you're in the daily mail for both I think but certainly for the goat project with under the headline bleat this which um you know I kind of enjoy it. Yeah. I don't know if they're looking at yeah. the finer nuances of what yeah. you're up to, Thomas. Sir. Yeah, I know. And that's the, well, you know, and then that's the other worry. It's just fluff and it's getting in the way of actual, just taking like attention away from actual sort of activism. It's full of worries, but uh, yeah, I guess we just do what we <laughs> just do what we can do and sort of hope for the best. But, but you don't take yourself seriously. And I wonder if do you sometimes think that's a flaw. More and more <laughs> thinking it's a flaw. I do take myself seriously, but I try to have a bit of humility as well. And maybe that kind of overlaps into the perception of not taking myself seriously. I, I don't know. And of course, I do think that humour is a good way of reaching out or whatever and crossing into different domains and so on. So it doesn't always have to be serious, but I guess maybe humility and unseriousness maybe slightly blur a bit. I'm just maybe too aware of like the sort of, you know, the limitations of my own projects and what I do. I spent a couple of years in America and definitely I think faced that like slightly British sort of problem of like being a bit too self-effacing and you know and so on and and you just rely on other people to like see what you mean. Fair enough look I have taken up loads of your time you have a young family next door I should definitely let you go but just final question what's next are there more books on the horizon? I've got this idea that I want to make a harmless car and it's another impossible goal that I've got this feeling that you know that it's interesting as something to pursue in a sense it would be a kind of continuation of the toaster project and goat man the two projects we've sort of discussed the most and the reason why I want to think about it is because it's this other kind of conundrum and it's essentially everything we do is harmful and every kind of designed object is harmful and I'm kind of thinking about this framing of design as just a way of transferring harms you can think of it as a you know or economics is a way of transferring harm you know of course you can think about the upside which is like oh it's a way of transferring goods and benefits you know but I'm just kind of curious about what would be interesting if we think about just the downsides. And I think it's interesting because it's a very direct way of linking the objects we design and use to justice, essentially. Like, because, yeah, I mean, it's another story, perhaps. But uh, yeah, so I want to make this this harmless car. (laughs) And that's what I'm doing at the moment. And as you can imagine, it's 
proving a little bit more complex and difficult than I first thought. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah. Uh, very good. Well, look, that's a lovely, lovely, lovely place to leave it. Uh, Thomas, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Grant. Nice to talk to you. To discover more about Thomas's work, go to thomastwaits.com. As ever, there are images from the interviews, as well as little films and other things on my Instagram page, Grant on Design. And you can find all the podcasts that I've done, sign up to my newsletter, and lots of other stuff at grantondesign.com. Finally, and this is really important, if you've enjoyed listening and want to see this podcast flourish, then please rate and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this from. And it would make me incredibly happy if you went to my Patreon page and made a pledge at patreon.com forward slash material matters. Just so you know, I've introduced a new tier. So now for only £3 a month, you can receive exclusive posts, blogs and thoughts from yours truly, as well as getting access to each episode before it's published to the wider world. Material Matters is a completely independent concern and any help you can offer would be hugely appreciated. Ultimately, you'll be helping to take the message of the importance of materials, skill, craft and design to a whole new audience. Thanks so much for listening and please stay safe and well.